Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I am your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me, as always, is my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. How is life treating you? Well, that's a loaded question. <laughs> it always is. This is, from the, this is planned from the start. I feel like this week I've only been thinking about work. It's work, 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 work. I haven't even really had time to play video games, except I finished up TIE Fighter Total uh, Conversion and discovered that the rest of the campaign's not coming out till 2022, and my heart was broken. Aww. Well, at least you have a good like chance to rest and refresh and get back to your backlog. Ha 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 ha. Ha 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 ha. No, actually, I'm just going to be working and podcasting. This weekend is going to be spent watching Return of the Kings so that I can podcast about it. Yes, I'm looking forward to that, actually. I, I am actually it. looking forward to that, too. Like, uh, it's going to be a little party. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Are you inviting, like, your friends over? Or No. By party, it'll just be me and Emily. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a party. A, par- yeah, a no, light party. party. Uh, there will be alcohol. We'll have yeah. some candy. We'll be like going to the movies, except not. I haven't been to the movies in a year and a half. I haven't seen movies since Sonic the Hedgehog. I want to see um I want to see the new Black Widow movie. Oh really? I've heard it was kind of so-so. I mean, it's an MCU film. It's yeah. never going to be amazing. Yeah, god, can you remember can you remember the time when they were just like everything and the Avengers just took over pop culture for a summer practically? You mean like right now? Uh, I guess you're right. But I mean everyone was so <laughs> excited about it. No one was like fighting about it the way they are now. They were just like Are wow. they fighting about it? They're always finding out something in the Marvel Universe. I don't know. I don't I pay guess. much attention to it because it's so such a quagmire. That's weird because MCU would totally be in your wheelhouse. I mean, there's kissing and you can like, like ship kissing. all the characters and they all wear, wear costumes and they have superpowers. Come on. It's I mean, I've totally seen all the a- Avengers films and all of them. Re- I've seen most of the major ones. I've seen all the Iron Man films. So, I mean, it's not like I'm totally out of the loop. But when it comes to the TV series, like Loki, I haven't watched that yet. Loki's pretty good. I heard Except it's good, the, yeah. I wasn't in on the finale. Yeah, I heard the finale kind of whiffs it. But, man, who knows? We'll probably get more. And There are everything. people who are, like, really in on the finale. And really? I think it's the people who are really in on the finale are the people who are, like, really in on MCU in general. Ah, uh, that's interesting. Huh. So, well, MCU is probably with us until the day we die. So there's plenty of time to go over everything anyway. Because the episode, the series really ends with the second and a half episode. The, the final episode is really an epilogue. Is there going to opinion. be, but there's going to be more, right? Yes, there will be a season two. There you go. Loki will return, as we have uh, learned. So, <laughs> yeah. And Tom Hiddleston's like, I'm going to play Loki till I'm dead, apparently. I'm like, don't do that, man. He's one of those actors who now you associate with that character because you can't really help yourself. <laughs> well, Nadia, we've got a lot to talk about in this episode. We're not going to be talking about the MCU. We're going to be talking about the original MCU, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> now, that was a segue. The JRR token's like, oh, no, why would you do that? He's turning sometimes in his grave. I, sometimes I wonder what would happen if J.R.R. Tolkien woke up and saw some of what's become of his work and how he would feel about it. He'd probably have very mixed feelings. Is Christopher Token still alive? Because if he is still alive, then he's definitely turning in his grave. I don't know who that is, actually. That's his son. Oh, really? His youngest son. Okay. Did he do some writing for, for like, the Similian or something? No. Uh, but he was definitely the the keeper of the flame, as it were, for the series. Like, he he managed the 
he managed the estate and he wrote a very angry letter to Peter Jackson about how, oh, he died last year. Oh, that's too bad. R.I.P. I do have very complicated feelings about estates for creative works being managed by the children of the people, of, of the authors who didn't really write anything, but kind of hold the rights for everything that they did not create just because their their parents had it and made it. It's theirs. And they... No, he wrote stuff. Oh, okay. So that's fine, I guess. He dug but... into a lot of his father's writings and everything. Uh, he was an academic. Oh my gosh. He was so old. How old was he? Oh, he was almost 100 when he died. Holy crap. Yeah. I did not know that he was that. He was born in 1924. Wow. Which I guess makes sense because, I mean, Tolkien literally fought in World War One. Yeah, so. yeah. So I guess I, I'm not surprised that Christopher Tolkien had a good long life. Good but. for him. <laughs> but we will be talking about all the news, including the Steam Deck, which I'm very excited about and managed to get a pre-order in. Huzzah. Oh, good first. for you. Yeah, thank you. You may congratulate me now. But... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, first of all, oh, thank you. Thank you. Omedito. Omedito. <laughs> what does that translate to? Congratulations. Oh, okay. okay. So, it's a reference to the, um, Evangelion. the original of yeah. Evangelion. <laughs> I forgot. Even the you haven't watched Evangelion. I started, but I haven't finished. But I, mean, I, I do know the scenes. I know the penguin even said, like, congratulations in his own penguin language. All the rebuild films are coming out on Amazon. You can just watch those. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. I mean, we should do... Uh, Instead of Summer of the Rings, we should do Fall of the Evangelion. It doesn't really have the same ring to it. No, but... it doesn't, but we, we could work on that. Well, anyway, before we continue, a little bit of housekeeping. If you enjoy the show, do us a favor, please, and leave us a review. We really appreciate it on the podcatcher of your choice. Of course, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgothpod. Or if you don't want to go to Patreon, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you'll be able to hear all of our premium episodes right there. Nadia, you just launched a podcast. Congratulations. How do you feel? I feel pretty good about it. I think it's a good episode. It's called, uh, the, the show is called Charlie and Dropout. It's all about Final Fantasy XIV. It's myself, Mike, and Victor just, you know, talking about the game. And uh, this, our first topic for our first episode was about why we got into the game. Uh, why we chose the races we did, why we chose the classes we did. What I'm trying to do with each episode is make people aware of which spoilers we get into. Like, for example, in the first episode, we don't really get into spoilers. We, we kind of mention uh, generic characters and all of that. We don't get into what they've done and what the, what they, what significance they have in the story. So I'm going to try to keep that up. And I hope people really enjoy the podcast because we really enjoyed recording it. I enjoyed listening to it, Nadia. You were oh, very fun. Got to hear all of your origin stories, and it had that wonderful Nadia kind of sense of humor. That, <laughs> that a twist of Nadia, a twist of Nadia, just a just a spritz. I think it'll be free the first episode by the time. No, not by the time this goes up, but later in the week, Wednesday, I think it'll. So if you yes. miss it the first time and you're not sure if you want to be a patron, which you should be, then maybe this will entice you. Yes, a week early and ad free is how it's going to be. Yeah for patrons going forward but it will eventually pop up on the uh free feed it's 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 a show that i want people to be able to listen to i would really like like there's a huge final fantasy 14 fan base out there and i think so i've heard a lot of them <laughs> yeah a few i think a lot of them would very much enjoy this podcast so if you are listening and you happen to be wondering about this podcast i can assure you it's great you should listen to it 
many people would love to tell you all about, especially Nadia, about the critically acclaimed podcast, Sholly and Dropouts. We'll get to the news in just a second, Nadia. But before we do that, what is your sacrifice to the plug god this week? And by that, I mean, what are you playing? Uh, I have had a very strange week in that I am house-sitting for my parents. And I don't want to say I'm on vacation because I'm not. I'm just uh, I, I, procrastinating, I think is the word I should use here. But <laughs> when I was there, I did edit the podcast for Charlie and Dropouts, and I did do some work. But I have been kind of taking it a little bit easy. Um, but the dog's a monster. So I can only kind of be around her for a little bit at a time because she'll jump on me. Otherwise, she's a huge German Shepherd, 120 pounds, not the brightest. Yeah, I have been just kind of playing a lot of what I was playing before. Just, you know, Monster Hunter Rise, uh, some Final Fantasy fourteen, just working on my uh, Alchemist class. And uh, yeah, not, just kind of take it easy this week, actually, when it comes to games and stuff. The game that I've been playing is a game called Baldo, which you might actually like, Nadia. It's basically Ghibli meets Legend of Zelda. Oh, that sounds fun. Baldo. Yeah, it's all right. I had a good time with it. It kind of seems like the best of both worlds of kind of the Breath of the Wild, open-ended exploration. Borrows a lot from Breath of the Wild, including the concept of shrines, but it also has a lot of classic Zelda dungeons. So if you we're kind of going, oh, I wish Breath of the Wild, but with classic Zelda dungeons, oh, there you go. You got Baldo. It is very puzzle-focused and is quite beautiful. It has that Ghibli vibe to it. Its cell shading is quite lovely. Who's, uh, you might have mentioned this, but it slipped past me. Who's developing it? An Italian indie developer named Fabio Capone. Capone. Oh, interesting. Yeah. He uh, is a big Ghibli fan, and he really wanted to kind of make a tribute for it. He's been working on this game for like 15 years at this point. Wow. Um, on and off, like not yeah, of straight. Course. Like he composed, he conceived of it back during the GBA era, but it never worked out. Right. Um, and eventually they kind of unearthed the series and it's gone through many, many different iterations. It was first revealed at an indie direct a couple years ago. And now it is on the verge of finally coming up. When you say indie direct, does that mean it's coming? It's on the Switch, or it's it is uh, coming, coming to... to the Switch? Oh, It'll awesome! Be on the PS4 and the Xbox One and the PC, and um, we got to do an exclusive hands-on at my place of business. So, oh, that's really cool. I'm gonna actually check that out when it comes out. I'm uh, hopefully it doesn't slip by me. Well, Nadia, speaking of exclusive hands-on at our place of business, well, the Steam Deck officially announced by Valve. It's going to be three hundred, starting at three hundred ninety-nine dollars. It's basically a what-if Switch, but it had access to your entire Steam library and was more powerful. That is the Steam Deck. Lots of cheeky comparisons to the Game Gear, which it kind of looks like <laughs> I, it. I but... like the, the nickname Gabe Gear. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good one. That's a good <laughs> that's one. That's really good. Well done. My favorite is the Photoshop of the TV tuner that is on top yes. of the... <laughs> Of the Steam Deck, and it looks just like it. I'm like, oh my god, it totally works. Reminds me more of the Nomad, just the function of it all. But yeah, it uh, it it is very 90s with its aesthetic. Uh, I love the concept. Not a fan of those joy uh, sticks where they are and the buttons as well. Weird face button. Uh, very positioning. weird because it's like in the top right corner and everything, and you kind of have to move your right finger over. It's a little strange. I'm used to like moving up with my finger not to the right there are touch pads and i understand this is a steam device so it does need those kind of mouse pads i suppose but it, it just uh i don't know it's just weird i'd never even use the touch pad on my vita but it was there to get in the way it's also big 
it like is quite really big. big. And I think hand cramping is going to be a problem. I I think for anybody who likes that Wii U tablet, they're going to be like, ah, I'm all in on this thing. But maybe <laughs> for people like us, Nadia, we're going to be like, uh, okay. I have very small hands. So yes, I'm I'm not looking forward to the design and the aesthetic, but function-wise, I know I'll never get one because uh, the scalpers are already having a field day. But I, I love the idea. Like, it's something I would seriously consider if, uh, number one, if I could get one. Number two, will Valve continue supporting this? Because they do not have a good history with their hardware. It is an open platform. And while being able to play Steam games is cool, I think the much cooler aspect of it is what it means for emulation. Ah, that's a good point. Yeah, the people are going to put emulators on that thing. It's going to be a Wii U emulator. It's totally going to be a Wii U emulator. Uh, if you, you want to play wanna... the five games on the Wii U that never made it to the Switch, there you go. Yeah, you're you're all set. You're all good. And Xenoblade Chronicles Xenoblade X for everybody. Chronicles. There you go. Yeah. Or Xenoblade, uh, yeah. Was it Xenoblade Chronicles X? There you go. It was Xenoblade Chronicles X, yeah. And it's all portable. And you know what? I'm going to load all of my emulators onto that thing immediately. Sorry, I'm not even afraid to say it. Are you... See, it's funny. I was thinking in terms of, okay, well... I don't really have the greatest gaming PC in the world. This is something that I would like because a lot of Steam games do come to Switch, but number one, they're scaled down. Number two, you often have to wait. So the idea of having it, playing it right away on a system that I don't have to fuss with in terms of uh, settings and stuff like that, I I find that pretty compelling. A lot of comparisons to Nintendo Switch. It's funny. I still feel like they're two very different things. The Switch has that name that is, I don't want to say the word casuals, but... It has a very pick-up-and-go nature that is very appealing to younger players, parents, grandparents. Steam Deck, which, by the way, is a stupid name because Stream Deck is right there beside it uh, from Elgato. It's much more hardcore, and that's fine. And I'm pretty sure Valve understands that. It's a great idea for what it is. You're still not going to have something that you could take anywhere that there's no Wi-Fi. It's still very clunky. And they say the battery lasts, I don't know, eight hours or something like that. But we all know that depending on the game you're playing, the battery's kind of probably going to surrender itself a lot sooner than that. So it's not the greatest portable system in the world, but in terms of something I want to keep in my house, I, I would love to have one. But again, the scalpers are already charging like $5,000. I want to try and play a Microsoft Flight Simulator on the thing and then oh my just God. have it catch on fire. <laughs> it would just launch out the window. Nope. <laughs> Actually, I think I probably could play Microsoft Flight Simulator. Because it, the specs are actually quite robust. It has a processor that came around in 2019 in AMD2. And it has one of the latest GPU architectures. So in terms of hardware, it's actually probably kind of feature, future-proof. Are you going to be able to play Microsoft Flight Simulator at the highest settings? No, but you will be able to play it. So it, Yeah, I think it, you could run it successfully and make it look halfway decent. But you, by the time it finishes loading, it's going to turn off because you'll have drained all the battery. There's that, and there's also the issue of storage. Uh, the base model is 64 gigs, which is nothing. It's pathetic for the Switch, but at least the Switch put, has game cards You can put an SSD. It. It's expandable SSD, though. This is, or, yeah, but can, people are pointing out, well, won't that mean longer load times? I don't know for sure, one way or the other. Well, I got the 512 gig one. Dang, son. That's pretty good. Yeah, I got the, I got the big one. And that has a faster um, hardware architecture as well, like a faster SSD. So I got the best one. That's the one everybody wanted too. So like, I'm going to shell like $600 off for this thing, but it'll be worth it. 
it's uh, funny how everyone's like, where's the Switch Pro? Where's the Switch Pro? And Steam is like, here, here's a, here's our base model and here's the Pro model. <laughs> Just right there, right <laughs> up in front. I agree with you, though. I think that the Switch and the Steam Deck are just not comparable. I mean, the Switch, as always, it's going to be a very accessible way to play indies, which, you know, if you want to do that on Steam Deck as well, you can do that. But they're all right there on the Switch with no muss, no fuss. It's a very accessible and easy to understand platform. And hey, it has Nintendo. uh, It has Nintendo IPs on there that will never, ever come out on Steam. Yeah, I mean, Mario Kart and Smash alone like are, are massive system sellers. And I think one of the reasons why the Switch took off so well at launch is because Breath of the Wild was a Zelda game that everyone was really anticipating. It turned out to be really good, so everyone wanted a piece of that. And let's be honest, your grandma doesn't want a portable Steam PC. She wants... <laughs> What's this? She might want a Switch, though. Yeah, there's a lot on Switch. Might want Animal see. Crossing. Exactly. Something like Animal Crossing, you're just not going to get that on the Steam Deck. So the solution, as always, is buy Nintendo stuff, then buy whatever you want on the other side of the veil, because that's the way it's been for years, and it's not the way it's going to be for years. I got a Steam Deck because I'm a hobbyist. Yeah. I mean, I could totally see you getting a Steam Deck. Like I said, I would get one, but it's not going to be an immediate, like, oh my god, I have to have this purchase. If it was something like the price came down, it probably will, because Valve, I'd grab one. I bought a Steam Deck. Okay. So I knew the Steam Deck was coming when I pre-ordered Super Robot Wars 30. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't know you knew that. Yeah, I was aware of it. So when Super Robot Wars 30 was revealed to be on Steam for Americans, mm-hmm. like I could buy it on the English-speaking American Steam, I bought it and thought to myself, I can also play this on my Steam Deck. Perfect. That's yeah, I was like, Steam. I fixed it. I like best of both worlds. I get everything I want out of the PC version. And also I can just easily play it on my Steam Deck. Yeah, that's really cool. See, there you go. That's a really good use for it right there. And I got the premium sound version for like more than $100. Oh, cat, cat, cat. I want all of the soundtracks, Nadia. Is this the 30th anniversary or the 30th game? 30th anniversary. Okay. Actually, I think there have been more than 30 games in the Super Robot Wars series. (laughs) Well more. I, I can't laugh. I'm a Mega Man fan. There's been one on like every platform, practically. Even like some fairly obscure ones. I mean, we just did the console RPG quest. Not yet. Right. I think you mentioned you had a Robot Wars segment for almost every single system that mm-hmm. we went into. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and speaking of which, well, I, I might as well talk about Super Robot Wars 30 right now because of a segue. Yay. Yay. Perfect. We got a trailer just recently. We got the rest of the lineup. And what I am most excited about is that it's going to have OG Gundam, which Ooh. has not been in a Super Robot Wars game since probably a portable. And even then, not really. This one looks like it's going to actually give a lot of time to 0079, which has not happened in a long time. I'm very excited. And then more importantly for me, they're bringing back Victory Gundam, which has not been in a Super Robot Wars game since Super Robot Wars Alpha Gaiden. Now, Victory Gundam is super sexist for a lot of reasons <laughs> and very problematic. But I love the mech designs and I love the music. And it has my favorite Gundam period, which is the V2 Assault Buster. Look it up. It's great. It's a beauty. So so there you go. That's the, that's the uh, small truncated robot war report from cat bailey this week 
Stand up to the victory. Sorry, what were you saying? <laughs> victory. Uh, what, what year was Victory Gundam or Gundam Victory? 94. Oh, really? Yeah, hmm. it's the last of the vintage Gundams. Ah, and okay. Victory Gundam's somewhat infamous because that's the one that when the DVD came out, it included a letter from Yoshiyuki Tomino who said, do not buy this. It's awful. I hate it. Oh my gosh. I love that. What well, is wrong with you? Because Tomino infamously hated Victory Gundam. Really? Because Bandai Namco was, well, Bandai at the time, was stepping on his throat and saying, you have to introduce the mechs earlier. He forced him, they forced him to do the episodes kind of out of order, the story out of order. He was getting sick of Gundam at this point. He was running out of ideas. And also he was going through um, some real depression. And I think a lot uh, of it was around women. It's a very vindictive. Oh dear. Oh show dear. About oh women, dear. unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, yeah. And then after victory Gundam, Gundam really felt played out quite stale, but then, and then right after that, we got G Gundam and Gundam Wing, and we started getting like the alternate interpretations, and that's where Gundam kind of went ah. for quite a while after that. Super Robot Wars 30, go check it out. But you don't have to wait. You can just go get the Southeast Asian version of like Super Robot Wars BT or X, and those are all in English as well, and they're all great starting points. Just look at the series list, and if you see a bunch of shows that you like, buy it, and you'll probably like it. I know a lot of people who liked Super Robot Wars X had Gundam Wing. Great. Yeah, this is amazing. So, okay. Nadia, we might get a Final Fantasy X-3 someday. And you know what? I don't want it. I mean, I haven't played Final Fantasy X-1, so I don't think it's going to do me any good. That keeps <laughs> blowing my mind, Nadia. You're like Miss Final Fantasy, and you've never played X, one of the most famous ones. Kat is so exasperated at me that she took off her glasses. So that's... That's how mad she is about this. I just like going, what? I know you should play it. You'll like it. I know I'd like it. I know I should play it. And 10-2, I hear, is even better. And what would they do with the 10-3, though? Uh, probably ruin it. <laughs> well, that's a given. But There is a novel called Final Fantasy X 2.5, which is quite oh, infamous. Christ. Here's why it is quite infamous. <laughs> Tina's ties to an exploding blitz ball. <laughs> I really have to read the summary. Hold on. Is it a parody? No, this is this is they real. Play this straight. Oh. So somebody on 4chan did a summary of it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yuna and Tita get stranded on an island. Tita is unable to concentrate on battle because of Yuna's swimsuit. They argue. The beach is covered in blitz balls. Titus kicks one of them in anger. It's actually a bomb. His head gets blown off his body. <laughs> and explodes. Whoever wrote this hates the freaking game. Holy crap. That's not nice. You know, I'm sorry, I can't. I cannot even stop. It's so good. <laughs> And this is an official licensed product that Squaresoft okayed. Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> wow. Does can, can I write a story where where like it says head flies off? Yeah, sure. We don't care. We're working on fourteen right now. This is going to be great. <laughs> wow. I mean, I'm thinking. Okay, you know, supplemental Final Fantasy story. You have um, Final Fantasy Seven had on the way to a smile, which was kind of a nice story about Aerith and the live stream and. 
apparently 10 had Titus's head blowing off. Like, okay, a bit of a bit of a discrepancy there, but I can deal with it. I was literally laughing while crying there. Holy cow. Yeah, cat turned like beet red. <laughs> Seriously. Um and people were like going, is this parody? Is this for real? And somebody said, well, actually, they didn't argue. Yuna was teasing him and laughing at his antics. Titus didn't kick the bomb and essentially kill himself. The ball somehow hit him on the back of the head. He turned around to see what it was. He says that it looks like a blitz ball, and immediately after it blows up in his face. And then they said, I'm no way defending the novel. It's still pretty darn absurd and humiliating. I'm just clearing up these two specific things. Instead, the real issue right now is how insanely out of character Titus and Yuna are. In the first half of the novel, Yuna avoids Titus and makes him feel lonely, then reportedly gets sick of his childishness on the island. On the island, Titus reportedly, I kid you not, makes dick jokes. Lots <laughs> and lots of dick jokes. Breast jokes, too. <laughs> and then a bunch of children wearing leaves and like carrying spears killed them and took their heads and offered them in tribute to the devil. Just pray that Final Fantasy X-3 doesn't happen, is what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, I, I think this has been a good indication of why it should not happen, and why we should just let the series alone for a bit. Treasure the original Final Fantasy X. It's still good. <laughs> yes, definitely. It's Don't... on Steam, right? If it's on Steam, I, think, I yeah. might play it there. I think it's everywhere, basically. The, I would probably get a mod version. to speed up the game, because it's a little too slow. Don't uh, the, don't the modern remakes kind of come with the speed-up option, though? Uh, I don't think Final Fantasy X and Ten Two do, but maybe the most recent version does. Oh, okay. Yeah, so actually, yeah, I remember playing Final Fantasy VII on Steam, and I actually did mod that game because it had the really terrible soundtrack that came with it, so I installed the original soundtrack, and uh, I think that was my first instance of really modding an RPG. Nadia, apparently it's the 25th anniversary of Persona. Go figure, we are old. Atlas opened up a 25th anniversary site and is promising seven announcements, I believe. And the first one is coming in September. You want a Jack Brothers sequel. <laughs> yes. Give ring back Jack Brothers. Give it a sequel. I actually don't care about Jack Brothers, but I thought that was funny. They're probably going to do like, there's going to be a concert and there's going to be a TV show and some kind of collaboration in a game. And also Persona 3 is coming to PC. Yay. Yay, uh, hooray. Oh my god, Persona 3 on PC, amazing. And uh play uh Persona 6 is in the works and we'll have more uh two years from now. So please look forward yes. to it. Probably get a teaser trailer if that maybe like a, a title screen, God help us. God help us, but probably not. Who even knows? But I'm looking forward to it. More give, give me Persona. I hope Persona 3 comes out on PC. That's my biggest wish right now. I cannot wait for Twitter to get mad at every single announcement. It's going to be fantastic. Oh, it's wonderful because it will be like, Persona 5 is not on Switch. Uh, yeah. Where's it's not Persona, Persona 6. Uh. This isn't Persona 6. This is all I care about. Persona 6 with an aged up cast in Hokkaido. That's what I want. That would be awesome. I would like that very much. Because I just like a winter aesthetic. What, what can I say? <laughs> you don't have to live in it, though, anymore. It's true. It's true. Nadia, I don't know why you wrote this, but you said, Cat Bailey, are you aware that Final Fantasy VIII is just Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet, the video game? Are you aware of this, Cat? Did you, have you seen Romeo and Juliet, the Boz Lerman no. version? Jesus, Murray, you, you, okay, here's the thing. <clears throat> here's what happened. The discourse on Twitter turned to Romeo and Juliet at some point for some reason. And 
somebody put up the trailer for When Doves Cry, which is the kind of also functions as a teaser for the movie, uh, a remix of the movie of the song, of course, not the original. And I'm looking at this music video and I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is Final Fantasy VIII. Like it is Final Fantasy freaking VIII. Everything about this movie, every shot is Final Fantasy VIII and kind of nine and 10, but holy crap. So I went on Twitter, as you do, and I started talking about this. And somebody responded saying, oh, yeah, uh, Nomura is a huge, huge fan of Romeo and Juliet. No crap. No, no freaking crap. Yeah. Fr- from second one of that music video, when they're panning to, like across this pretty boys, and I'm like, holy shit, those are Final Fantasy characters. Like, it just blew my mind. This is something I'm writing, by the way, for Inverse. So please look forward to that. It's still good, though, Nadia. It's still good, despite what you say. There's even a scene where Romeo and Juliet are on the balcony and there's fireworks. Like, come on. Oh, my gosh. Come on. Well, you got me there. Nobody's there, ever been on a balcony with fireworks. Oh, there's a big party and there's an aquarium thing. And it's very, uh, you got to watch. It's a great movie. I don't care. First of all, like, I think it's the best adaptation of Romeo and Juliet ever done. I think it's still fantastic. I think the soundtrack is amazing. I think Leonardo DiCaprio is just everything in that movie. He, I had a huge crush on him when I was around that age. I think it was, came out in, tw- in not Romeo and Juliet came out in, tw- in uh, 1996. So I would have been 16, 17. So I was at that age. And this is actually an age when a lot of people I noticed were kind of putting that aesthetic into their games. Like Nintendo outright admitted it without saying the name of, of who it was, but saying that Link in Ocarina of Time is based on Leonardo DiCaprio. It's the thing I wrote for 1UP. Sorry, not 1UP, US Gamer. Well, Nadia, that's it for the news this week. It's time to move on to our main topic, and that is what do RPGs owe J.R.R. Token as part of our Summer of the Rings series? Don't go away. Okay, we are here with David Craddock. David, welcome back to the show. It's been a while. It has been a while. Several dozen episodes, I think. I know. I don't, you've definitely not been here during the Patreon era, but I don't remember what we last talked about, but you've been here from time to time to talk about Demon Souls, I think, and Lord of the Rings, oh, yeah. and well, especially roguelikes, because that's kind of your wheelhouse, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And everything kind of stems from there in a way, which is what we'll be talking about today. And what have you been up to of late? (laughs) Um, I I kickstarted a book on XCOM, uh, which funded in 24 hours and and did pretty well. So that was cool. And then I'm I'm working with a publisher right now to write a series on... um, Mortal Kombat, especially the the fandom around it, around it, they don't they don't know it's a series yet. They signed me for one book, so that'll be a surprise for them. Surprise! And, surprise! Guess what? <laughs> Send more money. And um, I'm producing um, an upcoming documentary about first person shooters. So a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of the other. Right on. Well, okay, so the reason I brought you on here is that this week's topic is basically what do RPGs owe to J.R.R. Tolkien and Lord of the Rings? The answer is a lot. All of the things, maybe. 
everything <laughs> except I would say Tolkien and D and D, and that's your two major factions right there. That's the thing, right? Like if you consider Tolkien is kind of like this the spigot that you turn on, and all the stuff starts to flow out. But then D and D is the filter, and everything through that yes. filter kind of came to video games. So the answer, like the short answer, before we get into a longer discussion, I guess, is like everything kind of it's like a direct and indirect influence at the same time which is pretty neat i think that you can start with lord of the rings which itself was an attempt to create i suppose british myth it's based on like beowulf and all of that stuff and J.R.R. token was always very skeptical of video adaptations of his work and maybe there was a reason for that because you know, even the radio dramas and such tr usually tried to turn his works into more of an action-oriented affair, as we, we've been doing a Summer of the Rings exploration of the Lord of the Rings Peter Jackson trilogy, David. And mm -hmm. if there's one thing that we've kind of been taking away from it is just the, the different points of emphasis and how they change uh, the way that the... Uh, how the works approach the source material and change the tenor of the source material. So... Video games in particular, I think, have always kind of grappled with that. So Dungeons and Dragons was definitely based heavily on J.R.R. Token and drew a lot from it, but it was also fundamentally different. Uh, David, are you a D&D &D person? The funny thing is, for as many words as I've written about D&D, I've never played it. Really? Because growing up, None of my friends played it. They played magic. We played magic, but I, uh, I actually magic kids. Yeah. Like I bought, I bought an AD and D starter kit and was like, guys, let's play. And they were like, nah, and kept playing magic and video. Games. So I've always wanted to play. And then I, I, I got older and got really busy. Um, I have a friend who runs as a lot of people have done over the past 18 months, um, a game over Skype or zoom. And I might look into that because it would be a, an interesting way to play. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, during the lockdown, a lot of people, a lot of my friends who weren't even into D&D got into the game through Zoom and uh, Skype and all of that, and they're having a great time. I actually found out recently my brother had played quite a bit of uh, AD&D, and I was laughing my head off because I can't picture him playing D&D. I've only played it once, and I was a, I was a half-elf, and my husband was a half-elf, and we were a couple. It was actually kind of cute. Oh, that's cool. I wasn't never cool enough to be able to play D&D. Ironic, how, cool, right? like, how cool do you have to be to play D&D? &D, there, there's one group of kids in my high school who played D&D &D, and I was not part of that friend group because I was not a boy. There it is. They're probably all playing female characters. Therein lies the irony. Well, about that. Know? No, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I wanted to play D&D. &D. And then when I moved to San Francisco, I was part of a tabletop group initially. I, I've told I've told this story in the past. I was a little bit, I would say, violent when I was trying to play D&D. &D, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so that's my kind of tabletop experience. But the even though D&D &D basically lifts directly from Lord of the Rings, uh, like the bestiary uh, characters, like the classes like the Ranger, who are basically just, who are just functionally Aragorn, right? Or when you're scrying, you're kind of using a, a palantir, things like that, or doing what um, what Aragorn would do in the movies when he's um, going out and scouting and all of that stuff. Um, so Lord of the Rings, so D and D obviously draws so much from Lord of the Rings, but you can already see the split because where Lord of the Rings is about ancient myth and the old gods and things like that, D and D is much more about the multiverse and the forces of chaos and 
puts a much bigger focus on the actual monsters than maybe the hobbits, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You're right about that. Yeah, definitely heavy on dungeon crawling. I think the cool thing about D&D is it's amorphous, right? Like it can be, if you're DM, you can create a campaign about anything. And that really traces back to Lord of the Rings as well, because Lord of the Rings was almost like if your English professor was a hardcore linguist and said, I want to make a language, I guess I should write a story around this thing to give it a reason for existing. and For an excuse to make it. Yeah, yeah. like Lord of the Rings was his campaign around this thing, which he, he really wanted to do. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, like he he wanted to create languages, and that's where um, like the Elvish language came from. And it's it's pretty cool to to think about that. And so that sort of extends to to D and D for me, um, how you can create a campaign about anything. And if you want to go as far as creating your own language, your own races, they'll probably derive from from Tolkien's archetypes in some ways. But that does still trace back to Lord of the Rings. What's funny is that Gary Gygax himself kind of poo pooed the connection to Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Did he yeah. really? He said, <laughs> "Okay, dude. I found the Lord of the Rings trilogy tedious. The action dragged, oh. and it smacked of an allegory of the struggle of the little common working folk of England against the threat of Hitler's Nazi evil. At the risk of incurring the wrath of the professor's dedicated readers, I must say that I was so bored with his tomes that I took nearly three weeks to finish them. And then he said later on, Gandalf is quite ineffectual, playing a sword at times and casting spells, which are quite low powered. <laughs> Obviously, I love that he's thinking in terms of Gandalf being an actual character. Villain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah, not, yeah. He's not optimally uh, like put together. You didn't, mi- you didn't, didn't min-max, min-max him properly. What's your, so magic user your and a sword user? What the hell? Yeah. Yeah. Gandalf the gray, but Gandalf the white, that's a different beast, but. Gandalf the Red Mage is more like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, he, neither he nor his magic can any influence on the games. The Wicked Sauron is poorly developed, virtually depersonalized, and at the end blows away in a cloud of evil smoke. Poof. Nothing usable here. Okay. Wow. Um, <laughs> well, we're in an era right now at the time of this recording where we know Gary Gygetz that kind of says some regrettable things. So uh, <laughs> yeah. that's... that's- he compared it more to Conan, but here's the thing. Here's a, here's some, yes, I believe that his feelings on Lord of the Rings is accurate, but also, I also think that he's trying to avoid litigation because oh. Lord of the Rings mm. oh, was explicitly like, I believe Lord of the Rings actually sued the estate of Token so, actually sued D and D. So that's why I was laughing the whole time while you read that quote. Because I'm like, really, Gary? You, did you feel that way before or after? His estate sued <laughs> yeah. you, which did happen. Boy, because I hate he, like, Lord of the Rings. Like a, yeah. He changed like a few letters in his monster names. It's like, boy, you know, the Lord of the Rings really sucked. I always felt that way. Yeah. That's pretty great. I mean, like, I'm not the biggest Lord of the Rings fan. Like, I do enjoy it. I enjoy the movies quite a bit. We've been rewatching them. I've really appreciated them. But... The tomes themselves, I have not really gotten into. I do find them quite dry. And as we'll kind of get into in this discussion, it was actually my mother who pointed out a lot of the connections between RPGs and Tolkien for me. And it was pretty neat. But to kind of go there and just say, oh, well, I could do better than that. Like, this this sucks. Like, I just, uh, (laughs) so, uh, (laughs) that's the funniest, saddest thing I've heard today. so funny. It's fairly disrespectful to Lord of the Rings. Sorry, Gary. Very. It is. It's extremely. Like, I'm, I may not be the biggest fan, but I am 
<laughs> it's probably. But I am not disrespectful towards it. No, it's probably one of the least disrespectful things he's ever said ever. So that's kind of the thing too, as well. Yeah. Um. I mean, he can say that. So the Lord of the Rings is kind of funny. I'm in addition to games. I'm also a literature guy, and one of the best Christmas vacations I ever had in college was over two weeks. I worked at a bookstore. It was my first Christmas at Walden Books. And nice. because I was lowest on the totem pole, they said, hey, my manager came up to me and he said, hey, we have this mother-daughter running a calendar kiosk at a mall like five miles away. They stole everything from the cash register and left. So you being the new guy, you need to go over there and run this thing. I'm like, well, I don't know how to do that, but how hard it could be. So I went over and this mall was a ghost town before that. It had a reputation Oof. for being that. So for two weeks, I sat around these calendars in this barren mall and just read Lord of the Rings. And it was it was fantastic. Like, yes, Tom Bombadil is terrible, but I was having a great time reading about his songs and the adventures of, of Frodo and his merry band. Um, and I tried to go back and reread the trilogy like a year, year and a half ago, and it was very dry. But what's undeniable is that it codified everything. And that includes everything used in Dungeons and Dragons and all the video games that D&D directly inspired from there. I don't think that you can deny that D&D was heavily influenced by Lord of the Rings and continued the thread because I think Lord of the Rings was timeless and our parents read it, but maybe D&D helped to continue, continue to keep its influence alive because a whole generation in the 70s and the 80s were playing D&D. And if you played D&D, I think you were naturally drawn to Lord of the Rings. And the devil. <laughs> and the devil. And Satan. The trifecta. The trifecta. <laughs> the, I mean, the funny thing there is like, that's that's totally true, Kat, because you really didn't have much else. Fantasy wasn't really a genre in games or in literature. So you you read Lord of the Rings and you played D&D and you just kind of pinballed back and forth between those two. In fact, the interesting thing is uh, I love Wheel of Time, which was uh, written by Robert Jordan, finally getting a TV adaptation on Amazon later this year. But the, the cool thing is the way Robert Jordan, whose real name, I believe, was uh, Oliver Rigney, he sold that to Tor, the first book, Eye of the World, by making it basically a Fellowship of the Ring-like, because that's what publishing oh, wanted. That was still the standard. Right. And then he got his contract, and he said, here's the deal. If this sells well, I want to deviate as much from Lord of the Rings as possible, because I don't want to just rehash that. And it did. And so beginning in book two, Wheel of Time kind of did its own thing to the extent that it became the Lord of the Rings of its era. But that first book, if you go read that, I mean, he's got the Nazgul, he's got the Fellowship, he's got the One Ring Tchotchke. Like, it's it's crazy to go back with that insight and go like, wow, this is what publishing wanted at the time. You can read anything else from like the 80s to the early 90s before, before Wheel of Time and A Song of Ice and Fire. And Lord of the Rings was the template. And that applied to, to tabletop role-playing games and video games as well. Yeah, and uh, not to mention uh, Dragonlance, which was my jam back in the yes, day. Yes, I loved that too. That was totally yes. Oh, nice. Lord yeah. of the Rings yeah. with the num serial numbers filed off in many ways. Yeah, it was totally that. It was totally yeah. That. Lord of the Rings fan fiction, but it was still such a great, such a great series. I'm so glad it's coming back. One reason back. that I appreciated, I, one reason I think George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones resonated so much in the '90s and going into the 2000s, well before the HBO show ever came around was that it was just so different from Lord of the Rings. It was a refreshingly different flavor. It was more, much more historic 
It was kind of based around like the, the War of the Roses and that kind of thing with the multiple houses and a kind of fictional England, because really it was England, uh, totally, yeah. totally uh, fighting against one. I mean, they even have Spain. They, they even have their version of Spain. In it. Come <laughs> on. And yeah. and then you just sprinkle some monsters into the War of the Roses. Bada bing, you got a you got a fantasy got world. It. But instead of uh instead of myth, you've got politicking. <laughs> and I think that people were drawn toward that. And similarly with The Witcher, it's another it's another adventure that is heavy on politics. Um, it does a much more of a kind of going through splitting down the middle, right? Where you have your your monsters on the one side who are heavy on ancient myth and lore, but then on your other side, you have all of the different empires fighting and the Witcher is right in the middle of them. Yeah, the thing there too is you could even extrapolate that from Lord of the Rings. Like Lord of the Rings, particularly, I mean, all three books actually had its fair, of, uh, fair share of politicking as well. The Council of Elrond was all about these different races coming together and saying, but what about us? What do we get out of this? Um, especially the humans, which surprise, surprise kind of mucked everything up. Um, and so that was, you get to a point where it's easy to say, oh, well, they took this from Lord of the Rings, like politics has existed long before that. But in terms of it kind of being intriguing in a fantasy setting, I could also say that it started with Tolkien as well, but Game of Thrones said well what if we took frodo and killed him in book one so that would be that that would be a thing right that'd be pretty that, shocking wouldn't that be super duper <laughs> yeah exactly game of thrones was cool because uh, as a lot of people have pointed out it was the happily ever after it was the ever after after the happy right they managed to defeat the evil king in the great rebellion the rebel alliance won the uh the dashing general got the girl except the dashing general became an alcoholic and the girl got very depressed and upset and started banging her brother <laughs> and the, uh, as you do. Yeah. And the, he wasn't, and the hero wasn't a very good King as it turned out. And his best pal kind of returned to the North and everything fell apart. And I think that's uh, that's neat. It's a shame that the HBO show completely ruined it and it'll never actually be finished, but you know, once uh, George R. R. Martin, bless his soul, I love him. He's living his best life. Passes on. Uh, Brandon Sanderson yeah. will come in and fix it, just like he did with Wheel of Time. It'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Um, I have not read a song of uh, Ice and Fire, but that's a pretty probably a pretty good summary of it. It's kind of funny too, because one thing I don't think the theatrical releases of Lord of the Rings showed, maybe the extended versions did, although I've never seen them, is after. Frodo tosses the ring into the big volcano. They go home. They actually found out that Saruman, and by the way, great naming token, Sauron and Saruman. There's no confusion. That is so no awful. confusion there. Why did you do that? They go back to the Shire to find out that Saruman has enslaved the hobbits. So it's kind of cool. Like you, you, if you look at it that way, like Sauron was the big bad and you defeat him. But then the after of the hap happily ever after is, oh, now I have to free my people. I'm really tired. Do I have to do this too? You know, There's a lot of that in uh, this. One of the reasons Suikoden 2 was one of my favorite games is uh, there's a whole thing where Joey tries to do the whole happily ever after thing. He thinks everything's going to be solved. He does this one thing I won't spoil. And it just he realizes very quickly politics just go on, even though you've gotten rid of the what you think is the main problem. I'm going to watch Return of the Kings tonight, actually. 
because I'm recording the Summer of the Rings, Lord of the Rings podcast uh, this weekend. And I expect we're going to have plenty to say about the scouring of the Shire, Nadia. It's funny. Um, speaking of video games and Tolkien, the first instance I ever saw or realized, like, is the first instance I ever saw of the two crossing was in Dragon Quest Three, where there's a character named, uh, I can't remember, it's a, it's a silly name, something like Norm, and he's a hobbit. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell is a hobbit? Because I hadn't read, like, even though I'm not a big fan of Lord of the Rings, I have read The Hobbit and I absolutely love it. So I was just like, what? he's a dwarf why is he a ho- i don't understand what a hobbit is so that was my first real introduction to the world of of, of crossovers of, of that crossover the world of crossovers and then you discovered that you were addicted <laughs> nadia that you couldn't get enough oh I was, I was i was addicted by that point yeah i think the easiest way to tell them apart is you take all a dwarf's facial hair and you just put it on their feet that's the difference that's the difference <laughs> right there well david around this time during the heyday of D&D in the 70s and 80s, people are also playing RPGs on their giant mainframes in universities. And they were, and when I say RPGs, what I really mean are roguelikes. And roguelikes were really basically just Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, Angband, Rogue, all the way down. You're literally fighting a, a Balrog in at least one of them. Yeah, where the Balrog was kind of the the final boss, and then, geez, it's been a long decade since 2020. Um, but uh, there was the successful, you know, you had you had Moria, and then you had Angband, which was like, well, what if Moria was just like one pixel in this bigger dungeon, and you go oh my God. deeper and deeper and deeper, and there's just it's just teeming with Tolkien lore, like that's Tolkien the the video game right there, and the Mind of Moria itself. It's basically the first fantasy dungeon, right? Where it tot- it totally is. Like it it had all the the ingredients, you know, kind of your just just add water and stir. Um, <laughs> or lava in this case. Yeah, and I think that like for a lot of people, the the scene in in Moria in the book and in the movie was just maybe the highlight of it. Like they're both great stories, but it is just, it's really cozy to watch because you're not there in the deep dark, but it is the ultimate dungeon crawl. You look at that and you go, yeah, I want to play that in a game. Exactly. Yeah. I want to beat those swarms of goblins or whatever they were coming down the town, the walls. Oh, probably not. I'd probably get overwhelmed very quickly. <laughs> it even has a riddle in how to actually get in. <laughs> speak friend and enter yeah exactly and you have the whole party there, kind of using their their talents to to get in um I, I think of final fantasy particularly the original too whenever i see whenever i select a white mage i can't help thinking of gandalf the white at that point even though you know there are a lot of differences in their abilities and stuff but um yeah the 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 similarities, the parallels are, are totally there. And there's reading lore because there's a part where they find Balin and they're actually reading the text and it would be like an audio log. It was. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking yeah, that when we were watching much. that, that was funny. Cannot get out. And you're just like, yeah, can I mute this? Can I skip this? <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of terrifying though. Yeah. And like, he just, I think in the movie you could see his handwriting was getting, uh, weaker oh and weaker. yeah that was a really subtle touch um but yeah as a player you're just like whatever i don't want to get out where's the treasure let me go loot some stuff i need to level up and what a hell of a dungeon though because if i'm not mistaken you would probably know this better than i would david i got the impression that the mines go literally go down to hell and gandalf 
went to hell to fight the Balrog and ascended to the mountain where he smote him against the side of the mountain and all that. Uh, I just thought it was a really fascinating uh, little bit of lore that unfortunately had to get cut, cut out of the movie because probably the, the budget couldn't handle Gandalf going to hell and fighting Balrog there. <laughs> but still, like, damn, like, uh, you have the, the, we have the first dungeon and it goes straight to hell. That's pretty cool. That's also, you just described the story to Diablo too, which is how that game started. In fact, I was, I was kind of thinking when we were talking about Gary Gygax earlier, one of the enemies in Diablo as you get closer to hell is the Balrog. And I'm like, wow, Tolkien estate missed that one. But uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, very much the same influence there. Um, it, that is also more the you know, Moria, the roguelike. And I mean, Dave Brevik had the idea for Diablo because he was hooked on roguelikes in college to the point where he was <laughs> skipping classes and just bunkering down in the computer <laughs> lab. I don't think I would be. I don't know if I was supposed to say, but yeah, that's what he did. And he totally got good grades and everything if his parents are listening. But um, uh, yeah, he just said, I want to make this, but with graphics. And really he was kind of bringing a Tolkien game to life, but with um, visual graphics instead of ASCII characters. Mm-hmm. Nice. That's Would interesting. Turn-based, but Blizzard said, now you got to be real time because that's our, that's our shtick. And then he was like, oh, it actually works a lot better that way. Interesting. <laughs> it does. It does. Imagine if Balrog chasing the party was just like them moving in turns. It might be a, a <laughs> lot less uh, tense. Yeah. But you can trace a direct line from Rogue to Diablo. And then even games like NetHack and Angband and everything have had, I think, an outsized influence on RPGs in over the years I, I personally think there are a particular flavor of rpgs if tactics rpgs are rpgs then roguelikes are their own kind of proto rpg i think i mean you're leveling up you got permadeath you're dungeon crawling come on definitely an rpg i think that's the thing there's still to this day there exists a lot of debate around what constitutes uh roguelike and i think the biggest sticking points for the fandom are um turn-based or real-time and um graphics or character you know text characters and um i think that's why you've seen i mean obviously one type is a lot more accessible than the other roguelikes you there's different buttons to eat food and to rest and to actually like set up camp versus hey it's diablo you can play this just kick back with one hand on your mouse um which is why we've seen roguelike game systems, which are, again, really Tolkien-inspired game systems, carried over into video games and become much more prolific than the roguelike genre itself. Although even, you know, Jupiter Hell, like, that's getting a lot of buzz coming out of early access pretty soon. Um, so it really just depends on how you package it, but whatever the packaging, it still traces back to, to D&D, which traces back to Tolkien. And so practically every first-generation RPG developer was playing D&D, Back in the day, not just David Brevik, but the the Bioware folks, they were all playing D&D. The people who started Raven Software and made their own first-person dungeon crawler, they got their start on D&D. And of course, Elder Scrolls Arena, D&D. I love the world of Elder Scrolls because it's the, the, the definition of Lord of the Rings with the serial numbers filed off. Not even. It kind of takes like uh, it, it's Tolkien by way of a song of ice and fire. That's Skyrim in particular. Yeah. Why do you say that? I, gosh, I think I heard at one point that it was going to be an ice and fire game. But really, 
the rights didn't work out, but so uh, Bethesda just kind of switched and made it a, an Elder Scrolls game. So I don't know how true that is, but it is something I know I've read before. It's where we have, uh, I think in, in Dungeon Hacks, my roguelike book, I wrote about convergent biology where, you know, different species will adapt in completely different environments, but they'll adapt the same way. And back then, your influences, even though there wasn't really a way to communicate, all these roguelike creators were inspired by Lord of the Rings and D&D, because again, if you were into fantasy, that's kind of all there was for a long time. Um, and, and these games kind of came to be in a similar way, to the point where, you know, with George Martin writing a lot of the, the lore and setting the table for uh, Elden Ring, I'm interested in, in how much of, of his universe, any trappings from that made its way in consciously or otherwise, because he's got to be pretty used to thinking in that sort of context, which you know will also probably harken back to Lord of the Rings in some ways. I think Dark Souls itself extends, it's sort of in the rogue tradition. Uh, it's certainly a, a certain kind of dungeon crawler. And even though it doesn't have permadeath, it does have a a punitive death mechanic that will like really make and it has the same kind of atmosphere, I think, as you're delving deeper and deeper and discovering new and frankly terrifying monsters. So <laughs> No, I, I fully agree. Like Dark Souls is really it's permadeath with a saving throw. You have a chance to go back to your bloodstain, and if you die again, then that bloodstain just got permit, but it's definitely the influences there. And they even took it to the next, the, took the next natural step in Bloodborne when they created the chalice dungeons, which are not procedurally generated entirely, but they're prefabbed rooms put together in, in uh, procedural ways. So, you know, the influence is even closer, even more obvious there. Dark Souls is like a darker, Dungeons and Dragons and Bloodborne is like a darker um, uh, werewolf game. <laughs> yeah, that's a good <laughs> analogy, actually. I can see that. Yeah, it's a very Victorian. You literally fight a werewolf or something at the beginning of the game. I think Father mm -hmm. Gascogne would be totally not out of place <laughs> at all in one of those tabletop RPGs. That's true. And you've got a, it almost, I always think of a plague, but it's really the hunt going on. But you just everyone's kind of quarantined in this Victorian city, which I I still feel like that first the first city first environment is like the best environment in Bloodborne, because that coupled with the werewolf and everything, yeah, I I can totally see the analogy you made there. David, have you played any actual Lord of the Rings video games? Uh, yeah, I actually wrote the manual for uh, Lord of the Rings Conquest as a writer at EA. I played a lot of that when it was in early stages because I was like, okay, what's in the options menu? This is when, you know, as a kid, you love manuals. It's what you read on the drive yeah. home when your mom's driving you back from KB Toys or Toys R Us or whatever. But th <laughs> at this time, it was like, just put the options screen in there and uh, yeah, we'll keep it simple. But it was really cool getting to to play the you know all the iconic characters and character archetypes in, in lord of the rings conquest while it was coming together that's probably the one i played the most um just because writing the manual i was playing all these new builds of it and stuff i remember there was one on the super nintendo i think i can't remember if it was the hobbit or or something but it looked terrible oh. and i avoided it very very gave it a very wide berth. that's uh i think that was one of brian fargo's interplay's first games they were reported a fellowship of the ring game to a bunch of different platforms it really like 
I think Tolkien was wise. This goes back to what Kat said. He was always kind of leery of video adaptations. And you think about, I think the first video adaptation of Lord of the Rings that gained any traction was those really kind of bad, in hindsight, animated movies. And early Lord of the Rings video games were kind of just as as cringe as the kids say today. David, they weren't bad in hindsight. They were they just were bad. bad. They were just bad. Okay. I was trying to like cushion it a little bit for any of the. It's like okay. The... Ralph Bakshi forgives you. <laughs> okay. Any of the three hardcore fans uh, who, who listen to this and also love those animated movies, like, what? Those were great. Like, no, they really weren't. They certainly had their influences. We were talking their about influence. this on the Summer of the Rings yes. about how the scene with the ring wraiths in the first movie very much matches what Bakshi did. So. They're, they had their, certainly had their, and I don't want to say uses, that sounds really dismissive, but they were influential in their own way. There. I like that. That's put much better. <laughs> yeah. But I did kind of like the Hobbit uh, animated version. I, I, I actually kind of like that better than the live action movie, frankly. Yeah. I mean, the problem with that was Peter Jackson took one like 300 page book uh, and split it into like 300 hours of, of film. I'm so mad. I'll die mad about that because yeah. I love The Hobbit. I love The Hobbit, too. I think Hobbit is actually better than, than Lord of the Rings in a lot of ways. Oh, you're one of those people. I am one of those people. I, uh, I am one of those people, too, Kat. <laughs> this podcast is over. Kat, I like The question. Hobbit a lot. It's a fine, light adventure for children. But Lord of the Rings is where it's at. That's what makes it great. It's, I love YA fiction and stuff like that. So I don't want to write I do too. YA someday. So I do, too. I mean, I think some of the best best books ever written are YA like uh, Robert Cormier you can't r- read his stuff and not say holy crap this is freaking amazing like read I am the cheese I know it has a really silly name that was actually parodied on Rockwell's Modern Life but it's <laughs> one of the most devastating books I've ever read in my life and it's a young adult book so there you go was it I am the cheese I am the most important person in the show yes I am the cheese I am the most important person in the <laughs> show my favorite no, line actually of all time. <laughs> also can, can I just say Rocco and Heifer better be in that Nickelodeon smash game like yeah I'm, oh, I'm, I'm looking yeah. for it I'm looking for it if Rocco oh, and Heifer are in that game I'm buying it <laughs> that's a day one buy. straight up I'm day totally one serious. I'm totally serious <laughs> pre-order it has they have to be come on Rocco confirmed for smash this is the funny thing. Okay, let, let's talk about how Rocco links up to Lord of the Rings. I think we could probably do this. Let's go. Well, there's that one part. No, nah, I lost it. I can't do it. I, I, can't, I can't make it happen. No, I can't do no. it. Well, uh, South Park once had a Lord of the Rings <gasps> episode. Yes. I have to say that was brilliant. Was I know South one. Park can be a real pain in the ass, and I know it has like some really bad episodes, but it has a few episodes that are just brilliant, and that was one of them. I, I still think that was one of the best things ever written. I do too. It was great. I love how that eventually led to the the first good South Park video game, which also traces back to yeah. Lord of the Rings. Nailed. It. Oh, stick yeah. of truth. Yeah, exactly. It's an RPG, therefore it tricks, traces its roots back to Tolkien. Yeah, but... Car- Cartman is like Gandalf, but just abhorrent. Yeah, <laughs> you know with his, <laughs> his character. Yeah, aberrant Gallic Gandalf. <laughs> That's it. The biggest problem facing Lord of the Rings in a lot of ways, especially adaptations thereof, is that there was the movie license, the Peter Jackson license, and then there was the book license. And depending on what you were based on, you had various limitations. So, for example, when the when the Lord of the Rings uh, Peter Jackson trilogy was happening, Sierra was developing their own Lord of the Rings game, but it was based on 
the book, the books, and they couldn't make it look anything like Peter Jackson's work, which was tricky because, of course, once you see a certain very compelling visualization of a fantasy world, it's hard not to take any cues whatsoever from that. You're asking your artist to develop everything from scratch. Meanwhile, Lord of the Rings Online is based on the books and not explicitly on Peter Jackson. So that's so it's drawing all of its stuff from the Silmarillion and everything. But then the Peter Jackson trilogy and the books all come together anyway because Peter Jackson is pulling plenty from the novels. It's all one big confusing mess. It really is. I think you're totally right. I think the same problem applies to Harry Potter and Game of Thrones. Harry Potter. Like, like how how do you even <laughs> how do you even visualize Hermione as someone other than Emma Watson at this point? Yeah, to me, like Harry will always be Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah, the but... same. Yeah, that was one thing that made me really mad about the initial Harry Potter film was that it was not anything like it was in my head, and I was like, no, this uh-huh. isn't how Welcome I imagined it. Well, it looked like a, a Disney production. It was too. It was too light. It was too fan- fantastic. Let me tell you something. The first thing that ha- the first time that happened to me was I read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when I was a kid, and then our teacher showed us the movie in grade four, <laughs> I think it was, and I was like, "What the hell is this? It doesn't look anything like my imagination. What is going on with that tunnel scene?" <laughs> and that just freaked me out. So it happens to everyone. This is Lord of the Rings adjacent, though. I, I think Harry Potter borrows a lot from Lord of the Rings. I mean, with the really whole does. returning ancient evil, getting all of the alliances back together, etc. You know, but in Harry Potter, I just really hate the visual style of it these days. And I think that series, like from a visual adaptation perspective, needs to be rebooted. Also, I think J.K. Rowling should be thrown in a volcano. Sorry, J.K. Yeah, Rowling. I, that's, but, that's with, the, the, with the ring. That's the thing. Like <laughs> into the cracks of doom. Uh, same. It's it's. I I could we could do a podcast about this, but I I one of the, I I love Harry Potter. My own writing. I write YA as well, so I was very influenced by Harry Potter. But it's so problematic to talk about. Like I'm looking forward to that yeah. that Harry Potter RPG. But I don't even know if I'm going to get it, and I feel for the devs working on it because now it's they're kind look of like the WB movies. Which it, it is. I I hate the look of those movies now. They just look bad. They look so cheap and CG. They lean so heavily on CG. And the yeah. reason Harry Potter grabbed people was because even though the world building was not great, it did feel authentic because there was a grounded element to it. He was living in modern day England, and then he was transitioning into a world that felt lived in, even if she didn't fill in all the details. The problem was, of course, she kept filling in details, and then it became more less authentic as she went along. And all of a sudden, but... wizards are pooping on the floor. <laughs> so so I can actually, I can I can tie some string between, between this and, and Lord of the Rings as well. I think one of the reasons the Harry Potter movies never clicked for me, first of all, they were so disparate like every other movie got a new director and so you had these diff- different interpretations of hogwarts it was like it was the same but not quite the same uh they're in their uniforms they're not in the uniforms but um harry potter for me is very much about world building a lot of the characters are incidental um harry like a lot of protagonists especially ya just kind of has to be dumb so that other characters can explain things to him but that it's very plot driven. It doesn't matter because Hogwarts is such a really, it's just such a cool place. And 
for a lot of Lord of the Rings fans, a lot of what happens to the characters is incidental because they become really absorbed in the mythology and, you know, from the races to the language, to the magic system. And I think a lot of RPGs can be that way too. Like there've been spotty final fantasy entries, but the world building is always kind of a, a focal point the discussion point where there may be a character where you don't, or a game where you don't like the characters or the, the story, but you like the setting and the magic a lot. Well, Lord of the Rings itself has a pretty spotty history in the video game realm. Um, there are like been 30 games over the years, and actually most of them have been pretty bad. Even the best of them, like, I guess you could say Shadow of Mordor and Shadow of War are the quote-unquote best of the Lord of the Rings games, I think have major problems, unfortunately, and are far afield from the original source material. And I'm always kind of surprised that there aren't more RPGs based on the Lord of the Rings license because it's a natural fit. I mean, there are some. There is a tactics RPG called literally Lord of the Rings Tactics. And of course, there's Lord of the Rings Third Age that was made by EA and people have a certain fondness for this game. Like There was talk of like, oh, we should do a Pantheon episode on this. But I don't think I would put it in the Pantheon necessarily. It's kind of uh, Final Fantasy X, only Lord of the Rings. But it was EA trying, bless their heart. Uh, Maybe the best one is actually Lord of the Rings Online, a game that most people have not played. I assume that you two have not played it. Oh, I've I've, played played so much of Lotro. I did. You have uh, played Lotro. Yep. Enough that I call it Lotro. I, I loved it. It is to this day my favorite MMO. And I haven't been able to oh, play it in years, but it's folks, it was fantastic. I had no idea that uh, I was bringing on a Lotro expert <laughs> onto this episode. I, I and don't by know. the way, this was all planned. So. <laughs> of course, of course. I don't even know if I would call myself a, an expert. What I loved about Lotro, coming from WoW, as everyone did, um, I played like 20, 30 hours of WoW and I got... I think that game is is highly overrated, even as someone who's written a lot about Blizzard. But then I played Lotro, and they started doing instance-based dungeons, instance-based settings of all sorts. And I was like, finally, here's a game where, because, again, the world is front and center, and I felt like I was having an impact on the world in a way that you, you, don't, you don't get from most MMOs. You didn't back when MMOs were still a thing. And Lotro was just... It was just fabulous, um, particularly because of those instance-based dungeons. I think that you kind of felt like you were actually having an impact on the world at large. And mm. as a you know, that's kind of what Lord of the Rings characters did, right? Like Aragorn was a king who didn't want to be a king, but he was he was uh, even though he didn't want to be a mover and shaker, he was still a mover and shaker in his way. He was influencing the world, and yeah, Lotro just did that darn near perfectly. I loved it. The thing that sets Lotro apart in many ways is that compared to, say, WoW, which is very raid-based, very Mm. PvP-based, Lotro is much more social, much more crafting-based, and apparently has a much friendlier uh, user base and community, which is not all that common in the MMORPG world. I guess Final Fantasy XIV, in some ways, has filled that space as well. FF14 hasn't become too toxic yet, I hope. Right, Nadia? It's mostly fine. I only had one one instance of someone calling me the worst dragoon ever. <laughs> <laughs> only one. That's good. Only one. Toothless. 
Sorry, everyone. My cat's putting her face in front of this camera. Okay, she's gone. Yeah, uh, mostly Final Fantasy fourteen. I've always found is very friendly, very welcoming. Of course, it's not perfect, but nothing is. And you might get caught up in some erotic role play by accident. By but accident, yeah. By okay, accident. Nadia, quote unquote. That chocobo sorry, started it. Yeah. They invade your house and are like having sex on the floor, and you're like, "Hi, this is my house." And you're like, <laughs> "Maybe ask first. What are you gonna do?" <laughs> hey, this is this is an RPG. We go into people's houses. We do not knock. We smash their vases. It's all part of the part of the plan. Yeah, but sex is going beyond the beyonds in front of the fireplace, like in front of my grandma's ashes Fair. or something. Oh, it's in front of the fireplace. It's romantic. Then your grandma's ashes <laughs> entered into it, and that's a whole new slant on the thing. But yeah, I think that all you need to know about how similar Lord of the Rings is to the general RPGs is that the original Lord of the Rings, Volume 1 and 2, that was made by Interplay, which is not a good game, by the way. And by the way, it was also the first time that I ever heard about Lord of the Rings because I read a scathing review of it in, I think, GamePro, the SNES version. I think that's what I saw, too. But it was originally just a generic RPG that Interplay happened to have been developing. And then they said, "Eh, let's just make it Lord of the Rings. And so they just redeveloped it, turned it into uh, a new story, and there you go. That's the weird thing about Lord of the Rings back then. This is something I I meant to bring up, but back Back in those times, the Lord of the Rings wasn't really a prestige license as it became later, particularly during the the Xbox 360 and PS3 era. It was just like, well, there are a lot of elves and dragons in this, and it's a license, and we make licensed games. So, um, yeah, it was almost no different than getting like, well, it was a lot different than getting the Ninja Turtles license back in the 80s because that was like a big deal, even though most of those games were bad too. Um but yeah, it's it's diff- it's it's interesting how the um, the perspective on the Lord of the Rings license in video games has changed over the years. So, final thoughts: How overall has Lord of the Rings impacted video games over the years? Um, I'd be curious in a a way that's large and a way that is small. So, I mean, large obviously it has influenced developers throughout the years in terms of their world building and everything. I think that every creator has had their, I want to create my epic fantasy world moment. And invariably they create some kind of variant on what Tolkien created way back when had with their elves and their dwarves, but they're slightly different looking at you Bioware over there. (laughs) And then maybe in a smaller sense, I think that, just the bestiary from Lord of the Rings has proven so compelling over the years because, of course, uh, Dungeons and Dragons pulled a lot of their beasts from myth, but also somewhat from Lord of the Rings. And then Final Fantasy went and stole that wholesale for their own game and so on and so forth. It really set the tone. Like uh, He sketched out a world that was compelling and people wanted to delve into and that became the root basis of rpgs what do you think david i think in terms of large i mean i I have to mention again that when a lot of developers think that they're referencing dungeons dragons they are probably really referencing uh, lord of the rings um it's it's that filter we talked about early on whatever gary gygax said um but in terms of the small ways I think that the the emphasis on 
morality in RPGs, which really, I think in terms of video and computer games, it came to the fore in Ultima, was that five? But I think of Lord of the Rings there too, how the how the One Ring corrupted uh, Boromir, how it corrupted Frodo. You know, every time he put it on to become invisible, it was the ultimate risk reward where he was able to avoid detection by a lot of Sauron's forces, but he also, it kind of blackened his heart and spirit too. And that's a, that's a big morality play. I still love those sorts of games where you have to make this, these double-edged sword type decisions. And um, I think Lord of the Rings actually had a lot of influence there too, but it just doesn't get noted for it often. I'm glad that you mentioned Ultima and I suppose Akalabeth because mm-hmm. in so many ways, Ultima is Lord of the Rings fan fiction. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, it's, it's, I, I remember when, when Lord British introduced this idea of you could go into a shop and if you couldn't afford something, you could just take it. And that has been aped so often in um, in RPGs. Um, my wife didn't play many, and then she played Fable, and she showed me that and was like, "Look, I'm stealing everything." I'm like, "This is just Ultima with armpit farts. Like, that's the armpit farts of the the window dressing on this thing." But it, I mean, it's it's true. But then you go into space, right? Then you go into space at Do the you? end. Yeah, at the end of Ultima, yes. you, you go into space. Sure, why not? Because Richard Garrett. It just reminds me of how in Skyrim, uh, you could steal from the shops, but if you didn't want the shoplifter to, to see, you just put a bucket on his head. Someone discovered this. <laughs> oh, and yeah. He's still chattering away. Well, it's a nice day today. He has a stupid bucket on his head. And I took a bucket Looking to like the that. head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think in terms of large and small, when I think large, I think JRPGs in particular mm-hmm. owe mm-hmm. everything. And when I think about it, God, in this day and age, that would not fly. The way they just lifted everything from D&D and Tolkien and changed almost nothing, except I think they couldn't get away with the Beholder. So they changed, in Final Fantasy, they changed that to a generic sort of eye enemy. From there, I mean, things are so much more litigious and careful now, and media is much more connected and everyone's keeping an eye on each other. Back then, who cared what a Japanese company did with with, with Tolkien? You know, oh, they want to say that, Bahamut's the some dragon god in their in their in their universe. Fine, whatever. And then now it's like years and years and years later, it's too late to change anything. So Bahamut is the king of the dragons in in Final Fantasy as well as uh, in in Dungeons and Dragons, and it's just t- it, no one's really going to challenge that now. I would hope. So it's just funny how so much happened for JRPGs because nobody really cared. Everyone just kind of looked the other way because it just didn't exist in their on their radar the way it would now. You think about Record of Lodos War, a property that literally was based on some D&D campaigns and then became its own anime and its own property. And then it's like, no, no, it's not D&D. It's Record of Lodos War. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, stupid. And now it's Tales, and now it's uh, Symphony of the Night, but actually it's not. It's Record of Lodos War. <laughs> I want to play that. It's a great game. You should play it, Nadia. All right. That is our exploration of the Lord of the Rings and the video games. I think that there's actually a lot more that we could delve into right here. I mean, God knows Lord of the Rings Online and Lord of the Rings Third Age probably deserve their own episodes, and maybe we'll actually do that. But in the meantime, David, thanks so much for coming on the show. Please promote all of the things before we move on. Yes. Um, 
follow me uh, at David L. Craddock on Twitter. Um, you know, I'm doing this FPS documentary, which we've got a stellar cast list. John Carmack and Romero, virtually everyone from it, a bunch of folks who worked on early games such as Maze War, kind of the the archetypal uh, FPS. Uh, Monsters in the Dark, the making of XCOM UFO Defense will be available in in stores and online in September. And um, my my series <laughs> about Mortal Kombat will, will launch next year in time for the 30th anniversary. And I've got a lot of other games, uh, novels, books about video games um, that you can find out about on Amazon or my website, davidlcraddock.com. David, thanks so much for joining us in the show. Now we're going to continue on to the epic boss battle of the week. Don't go away. Okay, Nadia, it's time for the epic boss battle of the week of the Blood God. And this week we have a reader submission from Matt Williams. Nadia, this one's in your wheelhouse. Their suggestion is Reno from Final Fantasy VII Remake. They said, for me, this battle is less about the fight with Reno, but really about the boss battles in the game up to this point and how the battle with Reno changed how I played the game and how it saved a downward spiral for the reimagined story. By the way, there might be spoilers in here, so take care. In the early hours of FF7 Remake, you can get by with basic button mashing, just pounding square to take out most enemies. You don't really need to utilize the full system right away. This changes with the Reno fight. You have to manage not only Reno with multiple techniques, but also the technique creatures he summons and the security officers that are with him. You have to time blocking his attacks while also defending against lightning and gunfire, and you have to manage using physical attacks in specific patterns while finding time to cast magic to take care of additional mobs. Aside from the technical aspects, this specific sequence of the game is actually what pulled me in from nearly bouncing off of it. This is a crazy thought, given the years I waited for it to be released. The Reno fight comes right after bombing the Sector 5 reactor. Leading up to this, you're playing through a lot of the same boring, repetitive Shinra reactors and slum areas. Not much enemy variety. And then you meet Roche. Look, I know some people just love this guy, but he nearly made me quit playing. <laughs> is he the motorcycle guy? He is the motorcycle oh, guy. Okay. I They're, understand. They are not a big fan of Roche. And... Uh, it, the, they go on a long rant about Roche and how much they don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> I was just kind of neutral towards them. It's like, okay, this is a, this is a thing they're inserting. This is a, a courtesy of uh, Namora. What they said, so after a long while of not picking it back up due to these terrible fights, I gave the game one more shot. I picked up the next reactor section with another mech fight and it was business as usual. And then Cloud Falls. I remember this from the original game, falling into the church, meeting Eris. And I remember the fight here with the Turks. But when Reno comes in with that air of cockiness, basically laughing at Cloud's soldier accomplishments and with the eluding agent at his fingertips, the feel of the game and Cloud's place in the story changed. And it changed my approach to playing the game as well, as this was the first time I died. The story was getting more serious, and so was the gameplay. It all happened at once. The exchange between Cloud and Reno here saved the story for me proved that the team wasn't going to add just a ton of shiny particle effects and some weekly developed new characters to the game, but it actually worked to take that original story and developing it in meaningful ways. And this is a beautiful example of how they made it happen. 
Thank you, Matt Williams, for the note. What do you think, Nadia? Uh, it's funny. I don't remember that battle very well, but I do remember the the part where Reno kind of strolls in and is all cocky and stuff, and that was really great to see because they used it for the trailers to kind of let you know, okay, here's what the remake is going to be like. And Reno is very, very much a fan favorite. So I do kind of vaguely recall that fight being, yes, like quite difficult. And I remember I think that was the first block that a lot of people came up against. I, I do remember a lot of advice flying around Twitter. How do you beat Reno? Okay, you got to do this. You got to do this. And it's funny, though, when I think of Reno and fighting, I still think of the original fight with him on top of the plate in Final Fantasy VII Vanilla, because that was also quite a difficult fight, at least for me. Because he loved that stupid shock prod of his. And also he loved to kind of put characters in the pyramid, which they can't move, they can't do anything in there. And you have to attack the pyramid and, and release your friends, but that wastes a turn and is a pain in the ass. So Reno's always been... I guess he's a, he's probably the best of the Turks. Uh, well, my favorite is still Rude, if you ask me. He has that flair. He has that character. He's not exactly on the good guy's side, but he will also throw him the bone from time to time. Yeah, he was he was a lot of fun in the remake, but I honestly don't remember fighting him very much. Do you, Kat? I just remember that there was a little bit of a gimmick in being able to figure out how to uh, fight him. And if you're able to figure out that gimmick, then you could get past him. It, where it gets gnarly is when you have to fight both Reno and Rude. And yes. They have their individual tactics that you have to kind of get around. I think it's one of the tougher fights in the game. That I remember, because I remember that being quite a bear. Because... Uh, yeah, they work together, and when they work together, holy crap. I actually had to put it on easy for Rufus. I was having a really hard time getting past him, because there's a very specific way that you have to approach that fight, or you will lose. Yeah, absolutely. There are definitely instances where I said, you know what, screw this, I'm just putting on easy for this fight. I'm and Rufus is like three different parts as well. Yeah, so. he is a long fight, and I think I was a little disappointed because the fight with Rufus is probably one of my favorite Final Fantasy moments ever when I first did it in 7. It just, that was the moment where the game just really struck with me. He was standing He's on the roof. like Sigma. He even has the dog. He has the dog, Dark Nation. His dog is named Dark Nation. Come on. <laughs> and just the scene where you're like, where he, you see this, his helicopter kind of in the background and like his trench coat blowing in the wind. It was so incredible for the PlayStation at the time. It sure was. Well... Thank you so much, Matt, for the letter. And remember, if you want to submit your own boss for the epic boss battle of the week of the Blood God, send a note to cat at bloodgodpod.com. All right, that is it for this week's episode of Axe of the Blood God. Thanks so much to David for coming on the show to talk about Lord of the Rings. You can expect more Summer of the Rings where that came from very soon, actually. In the meantime... Follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. Make sure to go to Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod to subscribe to the podcast and get all of our premium content, including Nadia's brand new podcast, which I can never remember, the, the dropouts. Charlene dropouts. Charlene, Charlene and dropouts. Charlene is like the nation that's all scholars and people stuck up their own ass. Final Fantasy fourteen dropouts. <laughs> That's me, Final Fantasy XIV Dropout Cat. You'll get back to it. I'll get back to it. All right. Go and listen to that podcast, and thanks for listening to this podcast. We'll be back next week, as always. But until then, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening. Happy adventuring.
kind of glad it's not a uh, parody. <laughs> Me too. <laughs>